I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Sarah, thank you so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, Ugly Apple, why the biggest stock in the market, which is also the worst performing mega cap of the month, could hold the key to everything right now. We'll tell you why. We'll discuss. We'll debate the road ahead for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Jenny Harrington, and Capital Wealth Planning CIO Kevin Simpson. Everybody here at Post 9. It's good to have every, everyone here. Take a look at stocks. See we're in red across the board here. Ten-year, 431. You could put up Apple, too, uh, for that matter, uh, because my bottom line, I guess, Josh, would be until rates and Apple stabilize. The market's not going to stabilize. I think the big picture thing to bear in mind here is that what we're seeing this month is wholly uh, of a piece with uh, what typically happens in August, what typically happens not only regular August, but August in the third year of the presidential cycle, uh, and coming out of an earnings season that, quite frankly, was not great, but not terrible, and better than expected on a lot of fronts. And you had stocks run up into that, uh, uh, better than expected earnings in most cases, and then you had profit taking. Buy the rumor, sell the news. None of this is foreign. None of this is strange to anyone who's been around for a long time. There are some differences in the dynamics beneath the surface in terms of the way people trade these days that maybe make these effects a little bit more pronounced. But if you look at where we are uh, in relative strength, in internals, in the VIX, um, all of this is well within the bounds of what we've seen historically. And I don't think that we need to make it more than that. But it it can't be a coincidence, though, that you know, interest rates have been moving higher. The 10-year hits 431, even a little bit above that today, which is the highest since October of 2022. Apple has not traded well this month. As I said, it's the worst performing mega cap. Yeah. All of this coinciding at a time where the market's been on edge and the market hasn't looked good for the last couple of weeks. It just cannot be a coincidence that you're going to need some level of stabilization in both of those. Yeah. Or the market's not going to be able to find its footing. So what the market does not like is the second derivative rate of change. The market has proven that it's able to weather higher rates. It doesn't like the speed with which the 10-year, the belly of the curve has moved. But then you have to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, where is it coming from? The 10-year was actually the lowest yield on the curve for about three months. So you had higher yields in longer dated, and then you had overnight rates significantly higher. And the 10-year almost, it's like a catch-up trade. That's one. But two, it's a global phenomenon. It's not just Apple. This is happening all over the world. You're seeing an an unwind in rates. Rates have been too low. Even the Bank of Japan is talking about tightening. And we, you know, even five years ago would have said, well, they'll probably never. So that's what's changed. But it's not just U.S. 10-year Treasury that's moving. It's all over the world. It's a global phenomenon. And I think we need to think a little bit bigger. So, Jenny, Apple's down 11% month to date. Um, You could throw up this chart that Bespoke had out as well uh, on the technical picture, which doesn't look great. 50-day, 200-day moving average. You look at Apple, it's been trading below its 50 and 100-day as well. Um, It represents 7% plus of the S&P and 11% plus of the NASDAQ 100. Uh, To get my point, like the stock has not traded well. It certainly isn't helping the overall market. It's been hurting it. And if if it doesn't correct itself soon, how's the market going to find its own footing to get back on this 
trend, which was overwhelmingly positive. So I think when, when you say Apple, I kind of think of that as just a proxy for that Magnificent 7 or Magnificent 8. And it's an interesting question. I've had a lot of client, um, client meetings this week, and they've been saying, like, how can the market go higher? What's going on? And, I, and when you say the market needs to stabilize, I would actually argue that the market's kind of surprisingly stable. If we think about it, we're only down 3% or so from the high. We are still at 15 plus percent on the year. And where do we stand? We stand at 20 times earnings right now on the S&P 500. Earnings are 220, but at 20 times multiple on that, that's 440. We're kind of flat over the last two years. So I look at the backdrop as remarkably stable. So when we think about the next move higher, does it need to come from the Apple slash Magnificent 7, or can the other 493 stocks move up? I had an interesting conversation yesterday morning. I was on an investment committee call, and it's a large foundation endowment. And what we did was we looked at the overall portfolio, the you know billion-plus dollars exposure to Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and we were very, very relieved saying to ourselves, okay, we don't have anywhere near market weight. In those, in those seven stocks. We would have been very uncomfortable as an investment committee if we were 7% in Apple, if we were um, 10, you know, 10, 10% or 11% in other... In yeah, well, the then you're underperforming dramatically, though. Not dramatically, day. interestingly. You and have I to th- be. Maybe not, not dramatically, not but you're dramatically. underperforming. Under, but a I mean, little if, you're bit. Not, if you're not overweight those stocks, I think, which most have learned this year painfully, if you haven't been in the seven names, you're probably underperforming. Okay, but this is where I'll argue, if you are a very, very good manager and an active manager and a growth manager, it is absolutely possible to perform in line with the market or outperform without those stocks. And a few weeks ago, I put up on Twitter, I'm like, can people just remind me of who's out there, who's outperforming, who doesn't have that kind of like major mag seven large cap exposure. There's a lot of managers out there. There's companies like United Rentals and XPO that are up like 90% on the year, huge, huge returns. And so you can be in other areas of the market. So my point of this was the call, the, the whole conversation on this investment committee was right now there's enormous opportunity outside of the Magnificent Seven. There's international, there's small cap, there's other areas of growth that haven't performed. So I don't actually think that you need the Apples and the Amazons and the NVIDIAs to continue to go up just to make the market, so, market go up. Kept, but I, sorry, can I just say one thing? I yeah. really think we're in a mathematical equation right now where I think you need $240 of earnings next year, you need 20 times multiple, maybe that gives you 3 to 5% upside on the market, but it's math and you need the other 493 to do the work. Kevin Simpson, I mean, my pushback on that could be, well, the proof is in the pudding that you need the Magnificent Seven right now to do well, uh, especially at a time where you're wondering about what's really happening with China, where our growth is going, what the Fed's going to do. This notion that you you don't, quote unquote, need these seven stocks to do well for the market to do well, given all of the other variables, I'm not so sure about that. What do you think? Yeah, so I agree with you, Scott. I think you need those stocks to move for the market to move. Let's pick up on what Jenny said. We talk about $240 a share for next year for forward earnings. So right now we're at 19 times that. So let's make the assumption that we're fully valued and the market might not go any higher for the rest of the year. I think what Jenny's point was is that there's plenty of other stocks that can move higher if you get a catch-up trade. So if the mega tax were over their skis, and I think they were and maybe still are, you've got plenty of other names that can move higher. So theoretically, you could have an index that moves lower while still seeing a heck of a lot of names moving higher. Tell me why the 493 other names are going to move higher with, in, with all these current sort of questions out there. That, that's, I guess, what ultimately becomes the bottom line. Why would those stocks... About 4.5% GDP growth. that do anything for you? 
well, I mean, don't go by, you know, the, be, be careful how you view okay. the Atlanta Fed's GDP now, right? It's GDP now, not GDP then. Oh, I don't then. believe anyone's number. Well, I, 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 I understand what you're saying, but I, 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 think, I think there's an opportunity for people to look at the first half as distinct from the second half. And if the first half was characterized by, hey, you better at least own market weight, Apple, Microsoft, and maybe be overweight even, okay, that's fine. That doesn't last forever. Once enough people catch on to that game, those stocks get overowned, and then you see exactly what we just witnessed in Apple this, this past week. Um, that comes off. The money does go somewhere. Now, we know it's going into bond funds. In fact, we know investors, just by flows, not my opinion, gorging on bond funds. That game will work for a while, too. But at a certain point, if there are companies growing earnings, if there are whole sectors of the economy growing and they aren't just tech, they will get discovered and money will flow there and those stocks will work. You, Kevin, added to Apple. I mean, you took advantage of what's been weakness in that name to rebuild a position back to scale of where you wanted it to be. Yeah, that might not be the bottom, because if you look at the charts that you were showing earlier, I mean, there's resistance probably at 170, 160, and that stock could trade at 150. I mean, if we've seen it uh, surprised to the downside many times over the past decade, I've been out of Apple completely over eight times over the past 10 years. You and I have been talking about this the past few months. We've been selling into strength, selling into strength. When it came down 10%, I had a void that I was able to go in there and actually take advantage of this pullback and begin to add to it. It's not a call on the mega tech completely, but if I see a stock down 10%, I'm going to take a little bit of money and put it to work there. You see, Jenny, you're going to tell me if Apple goes to the 150, which Kevin Simpson suggests that it might, that the market's just going to be fine? Because all these other stocks are just going to magically have pulled up the, the, the slack? I think it's possible. And I think it's an interesting thing to think about TJX and Target, which Ed Yardeni highlighted in his piece this morning, where he's like, things are just moving asynchronously still. So you have Target that actually had negative, you know, negative earnings. Numbers were pretty, re like, not great. And then you had TJX that actually saw earnings up 6%. Guess what earnings growth for Apple is supposed to be? 6%. But is it a much, it's kind of at a much higher profile. Like, why not have... 20 or 30 TJXs out there pick up the slack for Apple. Because they let won't. Apple, okay, but let Apple plateau. They could. It sounds great, but what they are the could. prospects of that happening? I think they're reasonable, and I think they're trading at more reasonable valuations than, the, than on average, the MAG-7. So I, th I think you can just... We've been having this debate for a decade. Can yeah. the market... Well, can, and when, Apple, when Apple was a $500 billion market cap, we were arguing, can the market have a good month, quarter, year if Apple is not in the lead. And we've seen the answer over so many different time periods that, the, that, that it, yes, it can. We've seen entire years, 2013, Apple is negative on the year. The S&P does 30%. So now, yeah, it's bigger than ever. Okay, I agree. But so is the overall S&P. And so you not only could see a year where Apple outperforms the first half, underperforms the second half, think about how many other companies there are approaching Apple's size. So you could get an upside surprise where Alphabet takes the lead. You could see Amazon take the lead. That also has happened, Microsoft. So yeah, we want Apple to do well. It's the most widely held stock in the world. It doesn't quote unquote have to. No, but I would almost suggest, and, and, and I don't mean to bring this up repeatedly around Apple as this singular equity which determines necessarily everything. I'm almost viewing it as the group of right, mega caps cap. that if you Agreed. if you start to have, you know, more of a breakdown in the Apple like stocks, be it market cap, be it AI and these and these mega cap tech names, which 
you know, NVIDIA's down 7% month to date. Now Microsoft's only down five, but Meta's down eight and a half. The, the point being, you can't have mega cap, which have been the dominant story of the year, continue to, to fall continue to fall and, and think that the market unless they is become going to be a fine. Unless they become a source of funds for other areas of the right, market other that take the baton. Which gets exactly into my comment before about the investment committee. We're still fully invested and we're saying, hey, how great is this? We don't have overexposure there. And as any responsible fiduciary managing institutional money or a client portfolio, you look at that and you say, hey, NVIDIA is now 10% of my client's portfolio. That's irresponsible. I need to trim that down to five. The cash gets repurposed. And I think that's really what we're seeing this quarter this quarter is this, is this widening, this breadth coming in. That's healthy. And we can look to past periods where we saw the top 10 stocks were things like, what was it, Josh, like AIG, Merck, GE once upon a time, right? The market didn't fall apart after they lost their leadership. Jenny, they right, plateaued. Right, right, right now, United Health is a half is a, is a half a trillion dollar company. Right now, ExxonMobil is a half trillion dollar company. Eli Lilly just became the largest healthcare company in the world last week. It's a half a trillion dollar company. These are not tiny market caps. And if they are working their way higher, spoiler alert, look at the chart, they are, we can weather Apple losing a few hundred billion a market. Or well, plateauing. Which, which, How about okay. if it just plateaus? Kevin, that's a fair point. To, to that idea, yes, Apple's down 11% this month. Well, the S&P's not down that much. Right, it's down right, 3 It's down 3 to 4%. To, to their point that, yes, you, you have had some other stocks pick up the slack. Whether whether that's sustainable, that's the question. Well, it certainly wasn't for the first half of the year. So to see some of these other stocks percolate as they have in July and things broadening out makes sense. Now you wonder why are these tech names down? What's the catalyst? It happened two weeks ago. The, the whole sentiment changed because we thought that inflation for CPI print was going to be higher, that inflation would come back, and then the Fed would have to raise rates. Well, the CPI number came in good. PPI was a little hotter. But then we get the notes yesterday where we're seeing that the Fed's really keeping another rate hike on the table. What that does is it pushes out the rate cuts, because what tech needs is rate cuts. What, the, what Wall Street, what we all want here is rate cuts for the markets to go higher. Well, that can't happen until the Fed's done raising rates. Can't cut, they can't pause, they can't be higher for longer until they're done cutting. And that's the reason that we've seen this shift over the past two weeks. There are some of these, you know, quote unquote, old school tech stocks, which, which are doing all right. Like Cisco, new 52-week high today on the back of earnings, right? Levels not seen since April of 22. Right. Jenny, you want it? You want to take it? So it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. So Cisco announced earnings last night. Numbers were terrific. And here's the reminder. The reminder is that it doesn't matter what the technology of the moment is. It doesn't matter if it's AI or, you know, the internet back in the 2000s, but but all of that all technology information flows over Cisco systems. And it's a great reminder how that's like the structure and the backbone of everything It's almost we use. a utility. Yeah. It is, but, but it's trading at 13 times earnings. So it's almost utility, but it's not a utility because yeah. they have really decent growth rates ahead. So we think, and it's got an 8% free cash flow yield I mean, and a 3% dividend. This is actually in our growth portfolio though. Um, but it's just the reminder that it doesn't matter what the flavor of the moment on technology is. It's all going over Cisco equipment. That's where I want to be. Shouldn't, That's that, shouldn't that be something that the Devo owns? We've owned Cisco off and on over the years. Right now we have an allocation in Microsoft and Apple, and I'm limited in what I can own in the tech space. So, so far that's been a good call this year, but Cisco checks all the boxes for us for sure. Yeah. Um, the other question I think to consider is to whether, you know, the, the psychology of investors right now is has shifted from, as Goldman Scott Rubner suggests, from a buy the dip mentality and market to sell the rally 
market. And, and that's a little bit maybe what we've seen, Josh, to why some of those mega caps, which have so dramatically outperformed. And by the way, even with the pullbacks, are still Apple's up like 35 percent year to date. But whether that psychology in and of itself is to play a little bit. Yeah, well, look, you've gotten most of the big reports you're going to get, and uh, you've gotten most of the benefit that you're going to get from this earnings season. So what are the catalysts ahead of us? You, you got a little bit of a gap here. It's late August. Uh, you don't have a ton of volume outside of options, which I know we're going to talk about in a second. Um, so I, I get it. People have made a lot of money this year. And, you know, the, the, the earnings on the earnings front, that news, I mean, we have NVIDIA coming up. It's a trillion-dollar market cap. I don't want to downplay its importance, but outside of that, what are, we, what are we waiting for? Well, you got Jackson Hole next week. Eh. Uh, but, yeah, there's an air pocket. They're not there's, gonna, there's they're definitely not a pocket. Do shock we, we, don't think the, the, we don't necessarily think the Fed's going to go in September, but, you know, November could be live. That's going to be least, an overhang as long as rates remain elevated. It's a, whether the Fed goes in September or not, I think, is the least, of our, the least of our problems because we are still feeling the initial effects of rate, rate hikes that they were doing in January and February. That's right. So... Some, I mentioned this gentleman from Goldman Sachs, Scott Rubner. You know, he, he was also discussing these so-called zero-day options, which some have pointed to some of yesterday's late-day volatility and some of the sell-off there. Bob Pisani, Professor Bob Pisani's here. Um, zero-day options. You want to educate yeah. us? Never miss the chance to educate the public on what's going on, because this is important. There's some public policy questions around this. So options trading, you all know it's exploded in the last few years, and recently a particular type of options trading has become very popular. This is zero days to expiration options. These are options contracts that expire and become void the same day that they're traded. Sophisticated retail investors are using them to make a one-day bet on the direction of the markets. But so are institutions, and so are market Makers. So these zero-day options are part of the recent explosion in options because of the proliferation of monthly and even weekly options now. So index options trading was up 43% in the first half of 2023 compared to 2022. Cash equities trading was down 11%. So recently, as Scott mentioned, Goldman Sachs Managing Director Scott Rubner has alleged that some of the recent volatility could be tied to these zero days to expiration options, particularly on down days. Why? Because market makers who take the other side of these trades have to buy or sell when option orders expire. So if a trader was buying puts on the S&P, which is a bearish bet, the market maker who sold them the puts would be long the market. So to stay market neutral, which is what they want, the market maker has to also short the market. As the market goes down, the puts go in the money, the market makers must short even more. This can create a cascading effect. That's Rubner's point here. These zero days to expiration options have an appeal to retail investors. You can speculate on the direction of the market with very small sums of money. It is a one-day bet, and just a one-day bet, and there's a cash expiration. While trading in most of these products is still small, the proliferation of these derivative products raises some public policy questions. Do these products pose any risk to the stability of the underlying stocks or to the markets in general? Rubner and others have essentially been raising the question that these products could get so big the option tail could wag the equity dog. The person who has the biggest uh, game in this is the CBOE, Ed Tilley. I just messaged him. I got a response. He said there's a lot of speculation on potential market impact from these options tradings, but they're based on incorrect assumptions. Ed says there's a diverse range of investors here, not just retail investors. He says there's a f the flow is fairly balanced between buys and sells, and because of that, the market maker net positioning is de minimis. 
and market makers have other ways to hedge. He's got a, a, a dog in this, sure. in this race, obviously, but I think there are some legitimate public policy questions about the general explosion of derivatives in general. Uh, Gensler has raised this issue many, many times, right. and I think that's the subtext of what Rubner's trying to say. I, so I wanted to, that was a great report, thank you. I wanted to ask you if you think the time of year that we're in is really giving this type of activity more of an emphasis than it would otherwise have. And just to put some, some meat on those bones, 1.86 million zero-day contracts traded hands at the end of last week. That's about 55% of total index volume. That's no more of data. So it is a lot of activity. But then the other side of that would be to say, yeah, but it's a ripple in the pond. It's market makers. They, they do their delta hedging. They get it done by the end of the day. It's, it doesn't really move things that much outside of the effect of one or two hours. It, it is, during the, like, it is what is the point, right though. way to think about that? No, it is a good point at a time, you know, season, seasonally, here we are. I mean, yeah. I looked up at the volume here at the New York Stock Exchange yeah, yesterday. Pretty poor. Almost at the end, it was like 400 million yeah, nothing. plus shares. Normally, we're over a billion, right? 800 to a billion. Yeah. So, but so, to, to so here's the question. What's the subtext here? Did this trading actually caused some of the recent swoon? And I think the answer is no. You don't I think, think so. I think that, look, when you get volatility, it increases options trading by definition. So what tail wags the dog here? Does, does volatility cause options trading or does option trading cause, right. cause more volatility? Generally, when volatility moves up, particularly towards the end of the day, you'll have more trading that's actually going on. So I, I don't think it was a huge part of this, no. I don't think that, I think it's wrong to say, there's perfectly good reasons why we've had a, a swoon in the last couple of weeks that doesn't have anything to do with whether people to are your point, the biggest trading. days of this were days with economic data. The biggest, that's the right. biggest days of this well, activity. That's what, that would make was sense. Payrolls though. on August fourth, CPI on August tenth. Th that's when traders wake up and say, "Oh, I have a bet." They'd be on, trading on the direction of the market. They'd be yeah, trading I mean, right. you would think the volume would be heaviest yeah. on those days. We're it's so fortunate. I, I There's other reasons why the market's down. We, we have so many different kinds of folks on the investment committee, people who do different things and have yeah. different strategies and, and, and use different methods in the market. Bill Baruch, by the way, um, I remembered saying a day on, on this show that you, you, you use zero day options. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on some strategies right now to, to implement these. Um, you know, it's a new, as the market always evolves, you have to stay on top of things. I mean, I, I've been trading for nearly 20 years and my strategies have evolved you know, year in and year out in order to stay on top of things like, like these zero DTEs that are coming out right now. I think they have a, a pretty solid impact. Um, I think everybody that, that has spoken here at the investment committee just now has made a good point. I mean, seasonally, there's a lot of uncertainty. Josh spoke about the rate of change in the bond market uh, on, on specific uh, economic data days. You, you're, you want to take a defined risk. And that's where these, these become a really good tool is either hedging uh, with a defined risk through a certain day or, or taking a defined bet. Uh, for a direction. Now, where some of the problems can come in uh, is late in the day. You look at yesterday, where the, the Goldman analyst spoke of, uh, that, that final half an hour. I mean, one thing from my studying of, of these zero DTEs I've learned is sometimes the bid-ask can really widen up, and, and as liquidity starts to dry up a little bit on these specific options. So if somebody starts hammering some of these, it really, on the other end of it, the market maker is, is, is sort of exacerbating what he has to do uh, late in the day, too. So there's just a, there is some tail that wags the dog at times. But uh, at the end of the day, too, we're also in a, in a very big time of uncertainty right now. And being able to take defined bets day to day and use these as a tool, um, you know, you would hope that this could be an advantage. 
Bill, independent of all of this, whether it actually moved markets at the close in the, some of these more volatile days, is it a legitimate public policy question to ask about the proliferation of derivatives products in general? Gensler, there's been numerous studies about the explosion of derivatives in general. Is, is there any legitimate concern about that? And, and could it eventually become an issue where the tail does essentially wag the dog? You know, that's a tough question to answer. Um, you know, I've spoken with, with people who, who are, you know, behind behind the scenes here making some of these and, and trying to get what their thought process is. And really, you know, what they're they're trying to do is add more tools, advance their products. And and right now I, I think it's I think it is a good thing. I mean, there's obviously some concerns from time to time, but you know, what it what the liquidity could be and what the impact is going to be. Uh, I, I think it's a good study. I think I think the regulators should continue to study it. But as uh, trading evolves, uh, as electronic trading evolves and, and and uh, I think these tools need to evolve with it. And as a trader, mm-hmm. you know, you got you to stay on top of your game and, and evolve, too. That's what I'm trying to do right now in, in understanding these as best I can. Yeah. Bill, I, I appreciate you coming on uh, very much, helping to at least add some clarity to what we're talking about and not being suggestive, uh, suggestive in any way that this was an overwhelmingly large part of, of yeah. why some of the volatility was there. But nonetheless, that's what some people are talking about. We wanted you to explain it, and you did. And, and, I appreciate and when that. Gensler talks about gamification of trading, this is some of the things that he brings in, the explosion of derivatives. So there's a broad, interesting public policy philosophical question. All right, Professor Bob, thank you. Okay. All right, that's Bob Pisani. All right, straight ahead, our chart of the day, why Mark Cuban is partly to blame for a big pullback in shares of CVS. We'll explain exactly what we mean in two minutes. Our chart of the day today is CVS. Take a look. The slide's pretty dramatic today, 9%. That's on news that Blue Shield of California is ditching it as a pharmacy benefit manager in favor of Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs and Amazon Pharmacy. Uh, other insurers lower as well, Cigna, United Health. Talk about big stocks. Uh, like Kevin, you own UNH. You make this story. Yeah, I think you touched on it. It's more the PBMs, the pharmaceutical benefits managers are going to be more affected by this out of the gate. UNH has a tremendous pharmacy business, but on a percentage basis, much, much smaller than some of the other companies. Same with Humana. And I look at California as maybe not being their biggest customer, but it's something you want to be aware of for sure. As good as a logistical company as UNH is, and they can price pretty much anything into their models, you don't want them losing market share, that's for sure. Generally speaking, are, are you, I mean, where, how are you feeling about not only United Health, but but healthcare in general. This stock was a great performer in 22, not so much in 23, dramatically underperforming where the market is. Yeah, when you think about healthcare in a presidential election year coming up too, depending upon what side of the aisle has the uh, advantage, sometimes healthcare stocks also come under pressure. We owned it for under 10 year, over 10 years. We're not going to abandon it at this point. I also own J and J. We're keeping the pharma side, not the consumer side, and I have exposure to Merck. So it's been an underperformer across the board from a sector perspective. I don't expect that to continue forever. Jenny, you've got some exposure here. Pfizer, Glaxo, maybe others. Right. And, and on that side, I'm not too concerned. I think this this is a bigger statement, what's going on here. And so at Gilman Hill, when we read about this, this is what we started to think. We said this is a very good reminder on how broken the healthcare system is. Why is drug pricing so opaque? Why do the PBMs even exist? Like, why are drug prices in the U.S. so much higher than outside of the U.S.? And drug pricing is a total black box. When this conversation about drug pricing control started about a year ago, we did a really deep dive and looked at what in our portfolio might be affected, which drugs and how. And even looking at that a year ago is very confusing. You know, and there are a lot of geriatric drugs that may be affected, others that might not. But it all just doesn't make sense. I mean, 
us personally, we just got our new health care insurance um, uh, and we and our we use Anthem at Gilman Hill. Our rates went up by 10%. That's insane. And they went up 10% last year and 10% the year before that. So our expenses are skyrocketing. And you know what? There's nothing we can do about it. And none of it makes sense. So this Stop to me. Stop smoking. Sorry. Your rates will go Maybe down. that's the opportunity that Mark Cuban <laughs> saw with the hunting. founding of his cost plus drugs, which I is obviously exactly making right. ma major inroads exactly in right. large states like California. And who knows which ones Maybe next. So from an investment perspective, I think it's confusing. I don't know that it creates opportunity, but from like a global societal perspective, I love seeing this happen. There should be there should be transparency. So I'm on a I'm on a monthly shot and when I heard what the actual price of that shot is, I said thank God I have insurance. It's the first time in my life I've ever said I'm happy that I'm paying uh, the insurance rates that I'm paying. And I'm not only a payer, I'm the business owner. So the decisions we make on the insurance front affect all of our employees and their families, and it's 60 employees. So you're talking mm -hmm. about the lives of hundreds of people uh, when we're sitting with insurance companies and we, you know, we, there's PEO and when do you get above 100 employees and then you could get to that. It's so complex right. that you could spend the whole year, you could have your CFO and your human resources person doing nothing but sitting down with insurance companies. So I hate everything about it. On the stock side, year to date, I'm not very heavily in the healthcare trade. I don't actually like it right now. The XLV is marginally down on the year. It's off about a half of 1%. It's down 4% from all-time highs. But it's not cheap. The median PE in the XLV ETF is 29 times. The median PE for the whole S&P 500 is 23. Both, both the S&P and the XLV consensus forecast for earnings next year, about 11% growth over this year. So I don't really see a huge opportunity, and these well, types of headlines will keep pressure on the index itself, in my view. But you just, one thing on that, like, you really need to differentiate. When so Scott got, does this with the hands, oh, sorry, I didn't we're see moving that. on. All right. You and me, we could do this after. Make, it, make the point. Quick. Okay, so you've got like a Pfizer at a nine times, you've got a UNH at a 19 times. So within the XLV, within the healthcare sector, Agree, like, some really are cheaper than others. I do want to note, too, that the Dow and the S&P are now uh, green. Uh, so we've had a little bit of a, re a reversal. Uh, I think Kevin did it. That positivity, five, that Kevin. optimism, I'm feeling it. <laughs> got to bring The job. Simpson bounce. <laughs> hey, maybe the Nasdaq will go positive, too. It's, uh, it, 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 it may be on its way there. We'll get the headlines now with Silvana Hanau. Hey, Silvana. Hey, Scott. Well, Tropical Storm Hillary is threatening Southern California. The National Hurricane Center forecasts it'll be a Category 3 hurricane Saturday morning off Cabo San Lucas. Then weaken, but bring heavy rain and potential flash floods to Southern California and Southwest Arizona on Sunday and Monday. According to the National Weather Service, a tropical storm hasn't made landfall in California since 1939. The U.S. women's soccer head coach resigned after the team's surprisingly early exit from the World Cup. Coach Vladko Andonovsky's contract was scheduled to expire at the end of the year, ending his four-year tenure managing what was once the world's leading team. An assistant coach will take over as interim coach. The Federation hopes to have a permanent replacement named by the end of the year to prepare for next summer's Paris Olympics. And Barbie's reign as box office queen continues. Greta Gerwig's bubblegum pink film beat Christopher Nolan's Batman as Warner Brothers' highest grossing domestic film. Barbie topped $537 million, surpassing The Dark Knight, which generated $536 million in 2008, Scott. Counting. Uh, Silvana, thank you. Appreciate yes. that. Silvana Hanau joining us with the news. Up next, the retail trade. Walmart shares are lower despite strong earnings. We'll break down the move with the committee, of course. We're right back after this.
Welcome back. Uh, Walmart, they beat across the board. They raised their guidance. Shares, though, down 2%. Uh, Kevin, you own it, which is interesting because yesterday Target beats. Their guide's bad. Their same-store sales are bad. The stock goes up. What's up? I think Target was maybe a little bit over beaten up and Walmart could be a little bit of a classic case of selling the news. Can we get this kind of good report again from Walmart in the future? That, that remains to be seen. I'd actually be a buyer here. I think they beat top and bottom line. Looked at those e-commerce numbers up 24% when Target was down 10 and a half. To me, that's an incredible number. U.S. numbers were up 6%. They're just doing and hitting everything on all cylinders. They've got back to school. They had July 4th and they've got holiday spending coming up. I like every Thing they're doing. Multiples a little stretched, so if we're talking about multiples, how high things can go, their earnings need to go higher for the stock price to go higher. You have Kohl's, not Walmart, right? Um, correct. I have Kohl's. We also recently bought VF Corp, but it's interesting on Walmart because I just had a conversation with a new client the other day who was sending a portfolio in, and one of the positions I recommended him selling was Walmart. And he said, why, why are you recommending that? And I said, the reason being is if we do have a recession, if the low-end consumer does get a little pinched, if student loans do need to start being paid back, and that might clip people who have student loans by like 200 to $400 a month, that may affect Walmart. And with that stretched valuation that Kevin referred to, I thought, these shares haven't really accounted for a slightly weaker consumer. So I'm kind of negative there. It's all, to me, it's all about the valuations and what the share prices are anticipating, which gets to the target part, too. And I think on VF and Kohl's, they're anticipating a just dead, dying consumer. Walmart, I think, was anticipating too rosy. I think Kevin has it right. You know, Walmart is trading right in line with its historical price to free cash flow at 24. Tough to get much higher than that, even with good results. Uh, in the meantime, look at Target. Walmart went into this earnings report 38 P.E., Target 22 P.E., uh, Target down 49% from its high, and Walmart much closer to the high. So it's a, it was a question of expectations mm -hmm. and what the setup was going in, less so than how different were the results from one company to the other, which, by the way, they were not. But look at the difference in the forward P.E.s, right? Target below market multiple, Walmart right. above market multiple at the current time. You have to decide which you, you should be more advantageous in taking advantage of at the, at the current point in time, Kevin. Yeah, well, I still think if the consumer's dropping down that Walmart becomes a beneficiary of that. You're also looking at a grocery business where Walmart crushes Target. And the consumer that's going in for groceries has opportunities to buy other things within Walmart. So I think it deserves the higher multiple. And, and Target's got this cloud hanging over it with the woke stuff. And we don't know to what extent that's going to matter a month from now. But they did not shy away from discussing how bad it was during the month of June. Mm -hmm. And Walmart is just not dealing with that. Yeah. All right, up next, Mike Santoli. He'll join us with his midday word. We're back after this quick break. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is next to me now for his midday word. Now, I'd like your opinion on this idea that until the 10-year and Apple find some stabilization, this is the sort of mix we're going to be in. I think it's going to be hard to get too comfortable if none of those things happens. I mean, I do think if, if the 10-year calms down, it'll allow uh, the stock market to maybe make a little bit of what's developing slowly as like a little bit of oversold conditions. So I think if I'm thinking super short-term tactically, that's probably the relationship we have. I was looking at a multi-day chart and the S&P's tracking 
the long bond, you know, pretty well right now. Um, in terms of Apple, yeah, I mean, it's going to hurt if 7% of the index is in free yeah. fall. I mean, you've been looking at but, it lately, and, and you've mentioned it during our, our mid sure. chats. But it's also this sort of an amplified version of everything going on in the market. So it's not, to me, it's not dollar for dollar, right? It was up 40-something percent first half of this year, doubled the S&P. So to me, it isn't so much like it's a bellwether of other things going on. It's just the index effect. Uh, more likely. And I think, you know, we're in a moment where we're trying to figure out where risk appetites sit. Where is there a reservoir of, of, of people willing uh, to take some risk at this level? Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny, when the market starts to get choppy and, fra- and seem fragile, uh, we, re- we reach for things to worry about. They were already there. Jackson Hole was already there. Mm-hmm. The government shutdown was already there. Uh, yields obviously are new, but rates, they're also yeah, where they were ripping. in October. I know, but I mean, it's been a minute. Yeah, I know, it's been no, a it minute. absolutely has. That's why we say the market has to kind of come to an, a separate piece with each threshold of yields. Most on your mind, it. I'm sorry, most on your it's mind otherwise is, is what, do you think? Like, what, what it, would you have come up here I and would said say, if I didn't kick off No, no, line? I think it's exactly like that. It, now? It's probably, the, if, the, if the bond sell-off gets more disorderly, and all of a sudden you have some sort of self-reinforcing selling in uh, inequities, then that, that maybe you'll get you your, your 22 VIX that everyone seems to be waiting for. All right, good stuff. I'll see you in a couple hours. Yeah. That's Mike Santoli. Uh, we'll see him on Closing Bell, of course. Up next, more committee moves. We'll go through Kevin and Jenny's latest trades. They do have some new ones. We'll tell them to you next. Told you we had some moves to get to. I don't want to do that now. Uh, Kevin, you bought more Freeport. Find that interesting. Just conversations we've been having almost every day about what's happening in China, where copper prices are. Talk to me. So I like to buy things when they're down. It's the old adage of trying to sell high, buy low. And when we're looking at copper right now, it's down 9% on the month. It's close to year-to-date lows. I'm not looking at it necessarily as a China play, although that reopening would be beneficial. But I'm looking at this more of an EV play down the road, thinking that there's four times as much copper used in EVs than in ICE vehicles. They've been cleaning up their balance sheet tremendously. They beat on top and profit line. The stock's done nothing but go down. Pay a small dividend, but they've been committed to shareholders with strong dividend growth. I'm building the position. We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's now 2%, and I'll keep buying it while it's out of favor. Jenny, you own it too. We do. We own it in our discipline growth strategy. And it's interesting because a a little bit of a different perspective on it, which is just we think it's a little closer to fully valued. But at the same time, there's such a long and enormous demand for copper in the future that we're totally comfortable holding it. But from a valuation perspective, we're like, eh, it's not as cheap as it could be. The other side of of this, Kevin, is is you got Marathon Petroleum called away from you. Yeah, talk about selling into strength, but maybe selling prematurely. We write covered calls, and this was a position where it was $115 not that long ago, went up like an AI stock towards the meteor range, and we were called out of the position. So we had some capital that we could deploy to Freeport. We also added a little SLB. Interestingly, Bank of America came out and said that also they, their thought process on MPC Marathon was it's gone a little bit too far too fast. If we can see that pull back into range, we'll absolutely be back into the stock. All right, back to Jenny, because you bought more Sabra Healthcare. It's a REIT. Right. So we had some, por- some cash sloshing around the portfolio, and we have two stocks, Sabra and then also B&G where they, they haven't done that well and they were really under the model weight. So for clients where they were under model weight, which was almost everybody, we bumped these two positions up. So for Sabra, it's got a 10% yield. They own skilled nursing facilities and behavioral hospitals. They've got a $1.20 dividend. 
They're finally returning to earning stability between the pandemic and an acquisition that they did before the pandemic. It's just been a messy five years for them. And after seeing them at Nary in June and listening to the earnings call, we look at this and we say, hey, this is a business that really has transparency and stability ahead. I want that 10% yield. I know they're paying it. I know they're committed to it. But we're in a buck 33 of FFO this year, a buck 39 next year. They've got 4% earnings growth, FFO growth after that. So the dividends covered, they're committed to it. It's a nice kind of stable place to hide out in this funky market. You got any B&G in the, uh, in the brown pantry? B&G? Yeah, so, frogs. Yeah, oh, the pickles? Yeah, sauce, pickles. Crisco. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cherry peppers. Yeah, they don't, <laughs> Good don't, stuff. It don't last long. Well, <laughs> why, why should it? <laughs> we're in a replacement Relish? Cycle. Yeah. No relish. No relish. Pickles. <laughs> Half sour. So B&J, just real quick, has a Gherkins. six. Gherkins. Has a six and a quarter oh, percent yield. We're talking about pickles, though. Oh, you're in this stock? Yeah. Oh, B&J. It was one of my summit sectors. Do you, do you worry that this is the most expensive sector on earnings in the market? Or okay, you're more focused on the individual companies? That's such a big question, which is like, why I mean, is it the real. most expensive sector? Yeah, but it goes back to our kind of conversation about healthcare, where it's completely divergent within that. So here you've got a company that's trading at 12 times earnings with, sorry, yeah, 12 times earnings. It's okay. got a buck five of earnings coming ahead. It's got a 76 cent dividend trades at $12, so it's at 12 times. So the sector, I don't really care about. I care about the company and the stock, and they had a really great earnings call where they just had a lot of visibility. They're buying back their debt. They're paying 96% of face. They're reducing their 5.5%, coupon, so they're decreasing their interest rate, um, interest expense. It's just a really good company that's in a good period now. All right, all right. We'll leave that the last word on B&G. Coming up, the setup on Deere and Palo Alto, ahead of both of those companies' earnings reports, back in just two minutes. Got two big names reporting tomorrow, Deere and Palo Alto. Let's take Deere first, which you own in the Devo, Kevin Simpson. Yeah, we're expecting good numbers. They, they had great top and bottom line last quarter. We're expecting something very similar this year, this quarter. Uh, analysts are calling for $8.20. We'd like to see a beat, but more than that, we're looking for forward guidance to be improved. If it sells off on a good report, like Walmart did today, you may want to take a look at Deer for the future. What do you think about Deer? Uh, I think Deer has done an incredible thing with the way they've changed this business model. It used to be about selling iron and trying to keep up with last year's sales. And like a lot of other great businesses, they found a way to annuitize, software-driven, uh, cons- more consistent revenue, and just a better overall business. And they've done it all with technology. So it's actually an, an amazing story. Uh, I wish I were in the stock. I'm just not. All right. Uh, Jenny Palo Alto, um, no, nobody reports after the bell on a Friday in the summer except apparently for Palo Alto. Yeah, I guess when you're the king daddy, you can afford to report whenever the heck you yes. want to, right? Why not? Yes. Why not? But I don't think Shares that- are down a lot over a month, though. They are, because Fortinet reported about a month ago and had bad numbers. Stock was down 20%. Palo Alto followed directly. So our thesis on this is the same as it always has been and always will be, which is that there's just insatiable demand for cloud and network security. And that's always going to continue. There was a Goldman note out last week that we were talking about. And in the Goldman note, one of the things they talk about is that Palo Alto has significant opportunity to raise margins in the future. So what do I expect from this report? Kind of more of the same, that they've got really strong compounding CAGR on their revenues, that there's endless demand. Consensus right now is for 17% growth in billings. That's going to be challenging. But compared to peers, we think that they are a bit more diversified, so a little insulated from the cyclical downturn. So that's why we think they could they could kind of surprise given what expectations are. One other thing, 
because the shares are down so much, the free cash flow yield. And people get on me about this, like, oh, Jen, the earnings are blah, blah, blah. They're so terrible. We look at this on a free cash flow yield basis. So the free cash flow yield is back to above 4%. So that's why it works for our discipline growth strategy. All right, good stuff. Thank you for that. Final trades coming up next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Cameron Dawson, Joe Ternova, Chris Heisey. I hope you'll join me then. Uh, just one more note on, on this Palo Alto tomorrow after the Bell uh, earnings report. <laughs> Dan, <laughs> Dan Ives, by the way, who's as oh, bullish as they come. <laughs> all right. On this stock, especially, I mean, it's like a table pounder. He's called it disaster timing move for the ages to the point on what are the okay, other, I'm getting what nervous. are they going to deliver? Otherwise, it should be fine. <laughs> what are they going to deliver? You have 24 hours. All right, I'm kind of panicking. Summer Friday. On the table. Maybe some mm, of those zero day one options. options. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, All right no, we'll Jenny, see. Let's, you'll, do, you'll let's do final trades. Kevin Thanks, Simpson's Josh, good having you. Thanks. Kevin Simpson. Kevin Simpson, good having you here in the house. What do you got, final trade? Thank you. We're going to go with Apple. Give me a good stock when it's pulling back, and I'll take it. All right, uh, good stuff, Jenny. 3M. They reported a couple weeks ago they're finally focusing on earnings. There's more visibility there. There's more visibility on what their liabilities are. Trading at 10 times earnings with a 5 and change percent yield. I think you can start to buy the stock again. All right, JB. Uber very quietly down five points in the month of August after incredible earnings. Don't play yourself. Yeah, the stock's been one of the best. Uh, that's for certain. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Dow's still green. The S&P 500 is still green. We'll see if the Nasdaq gets there. And I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.